So we are in the middle of a series on the Old Covenant. And we worked, um, prior to this series, we worked through the whole book of Genesis, the whole uh, book of Exodus up to chapter 19. So they got out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai. But instead of going Exodus 20, 21, 22, etc., what we're going to do instead is stop and uh, look at it more systematically. So we're going to try to synthesize what the Bible teaches about the covenant that was made with the people of Israel at Sinai. So from Exodus 20 all the way through really um, to the end of Deuteronomy, this is the bulk of the substance. The Old Covenant, uh, so we're looking at its what it is, its nature, its laws, its rules, its place in redemptive history, all this kind of stuff. And I said at the beginning, I have no idea how long this series is going to be. This is our third week tonight. We might be here for a few more weeks. We might be here for several months. I, I just don't know. Because it's too big and too complex for me to wrap my head around how I'm going to approach the whole thing yet. So I'm just taking it a week at a time and we're sort of building cumulatively. So what we have seen in the last couple of weeks is that the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God enters into with the people of Israel at Sinai, it is a covenant of works, but not the covenant of works that was made with Adam in the beginning. Neither is the Old Covenant, the, that is the Mosaic Covenant, which was made with the people of Israel at Sinai, neither is it the Covenant of Grace. Hebrews 8 is very clear that the New Covenant, which Christ mediates, is not the same thing as the covenant that was made at Sinai. So the Sinai Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, these are all names for the same thing, is not the original covenant of works that was made with Adam in the garden, nor is it the same thing as the covenant that Christ mediates, which is the new covenant, which we also call the covenant of grace. It's a third thing. And John Owen summarizes a conclusion that we should draw from what I just said um, by, ex- by teaching us or pointing out to us that therefore nobody who has ever been saved was saved by virtue of the Old Covenant. Neither has anyone who has been damned been damned by virtue of the Old Covenant. Everyone who has ever been damned has been damned because of the broken covenant of works in the garden. Adam sinned and plunged himself and all his posterity into guilt and corruption. So, if anybody who lived and died and went to hell under the old covenant, lived and died and went to hell, it was not because of the old covenant, anything to do with the old covenant. It was because they were already guilty and corrupt in Adam. Likewise, if somebody lived, died, and went to heaven under the Old Covenant, they were a, somebody that was in the Old Covenant, and they lived under the Old Covenant, died, went to heaven, it wasn't because of the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant is not the covenant that Christ mediates. It's a different covenant from that. And we know that everyone who has ever been saved from the beginning of time to the end is saved by Christ. And so if they went to heaven, it wasn't because of the Old Covenant, it was because of Christ. 
So everyone who is saved is saved because of the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant. Everyone who is damned is damned because of the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden, which was broken. The old covenant then, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, is a third thing. It's not a saving covenant or a damning covenant. With this in mind, all of that is kind of summary so far. I stated it in a different way. So, so what I just said might seem new to you, but it's actually substantially what we've been covering over the last couple of weeks, just in different words. So all of that's review. And with this in mind, what does Leviticus 18 mean, which I've taken as our text tonight? God is speaking to the children of Israel in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, the Old Covenant. And he says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Well, let me introduce you to a theological debate, which is called the Republication Debate. And let me give you an overview of it. I'm going to quote from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church report on republication. They say, Republication is the notion that the covenant of works, that is the covenant that was made with Adam in the garden, obey and you'll live, disobey and you'll die. Republication is the notion that the covenant of works is in some sense echoed in the Mosaic covenant at Sinai. Now, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, or I'm just going to call it the OPC from now on, the OPC is committed to the idea that the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the Covenant of Grace. They believe that the New Covenant and the Old Covenant are substantially the same. Most Paedo-Baptists believe that. Most, uh, so the Dutch Reformed, the Presbyterians... Most uh, Reformed Christians that baptize their infants have this view of covenant theology that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are substantially the same. And so the substance is Christ and His salvation first in a promissory form like types and shadows, the Lamb, the Temple, the priests, etc., etc., and then in its fulfillment form. But they basically... They believe that the the two covenants sort of are outwardly different, but they're basically the same. So like, if right now you're wearing a blue shirt, and then you leave and change and come back wearing a red shirt, you look a little different, but really you're substantially the same. Something like this is what they believe is going on with the old covenant and the new. So for them, republication could only ever happen in a very limited way. Because if they believe that the Old Covenant is substantially the same as the New Covenant, which Christ mediates, then they can't very well go and say that the Old Covenant is very much like the Covenant of Works in the beginning. Because obviously the Covenant of Works in the beginning is very different from the New Covenant, which Christ mediates. Now, we as... Reformed Baptists are not committed to the idea that the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the Covenant of Grace. In fact, we strongly disagree with that idea. 
The covenant of grace is the covenant that Christ mediates. Again, we see that in Hebrews 8. That is the new covenant, which is expressly set down in Hebrews 8 as being better than and different from the old covenant. So if the new covenant is better than and different than the old covenant, obviously it's not the same. So we are open to the idea of republication, which is, by way of reminder, that the covenant of works, which is the covenant that was made in the beginning with Adam, is in some sense echoed in the covenant that was made with the children of Israel at Sinai. In fact, we agree that it is, in some sense, echoed. So in some sense, we believe in republication. In what sense? Or in what senses do we believe that the Old Covenant is a republication of the covenant of works that God made without it? First, in the sense that it was conditional. I preached a whole sermon on this a couple weeks ago. Remember that this series is cumulative. So this is going over your head and I'm losing you. Go back and listen to the first couple because it will make a lot more sense. Um, I preached a whole sermon two weeks ago on this idea that the old covenant was conditional just as the original covenant of works with Adam was conditional. So obviously there's an echo of the first covenant of the old, or pardon me, of the covenant of works in that sense. The covenant of works that God made with Adam was conditional and so is the covenant at Sinai. So there's an echo. There's republication in that sense. Also, There is an echo of the covenant of works in the covenant made with the Israelites at Sinai in the sense that the covenant at Sinai promised some kind of blessedness for obedience as did the original covenant of works. So again, I'd refer you back to the sermon that I preached a couple of weeks ago for a more in-depth consideration of this idea. Deuteronomy 28, though, is a key passage Uh, that substantiates this claim that blessedness was promised on the condition of obedience and implicitly uh, cursedness was promised on the condition of disobedience. Thirdly, there is an echo of the original covenant of works in the covenant that was made with the children of Israel at Sinai in the sense that the covenant at Sinai repeated the idea that one could live by his own righteousness. As Adam, in the beginning, could have lived and not died if he perfectly, perpetually, and entirely obeyed God's law. So it's a general principle, always and ever applicable. That if anyone could live, pardon me, so that anyone could live and not die, if they obey God perfectly, perpetually, and entirely. Leviticus 18.5, again, let me read it to you. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. This is speaking not only to 
quality of life and length of life for the Israelites in the land of Canaan. This is not speaking only of temporal life and flourishing, though it is speaking of that. It's also repeating the idea that there is a connection between righteousness and ultimate life or eternal life, we could say. It's repeating the idea that if you're righteous, you don't need to die. There is no wrath if you're righteous. If a person does God's law, he will live by them. This is the part of the sense of Leviticus 18 and verse 5. We see that when we look at how the New Testament quotes and alludes to this verse. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 12 says this. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul is discussing in Galatians how somebody can be justified. And he quotes Leviticus 18 as showing that a person could be justified, hypothetically, by doing God's law. He quotes Leviticus 18 as teaching that idea, as giving that set, it, he gives it that sense. Then we look over at Romans chapter 10. I have here written verse 15, but I believe it's actually verse 5. Yes, it is. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So that's not a direct quote, but that's an illusion. He's, he's saying, yes, the old covenant contained the idea that if a person perfectly, perpetually, and entirely were to obey God's law, they would live and not die. God is not going to pour His wrath upon a righteous person. God is not going to send to hell a righteous person. And so if a person does God's law, he shall live by them. This principle is also repeated by Jesus in Luke 18, verses 18 to 20. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say to him, well, there's nothing you can do. You have to trust in me and be justified by grace through faith alone. Jesus doesn't say that in this context. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. That's an obvious allusion to the Ten Commandments, which, as we will see in a future week, are really the heart of the Old Covenant. What Jesus basically says to this guy is, well, keep the commandments, and you will inherit eternal life. We see this principle throughout the Scripture, with Adam in the garden, repeated in the Old Covenant, repeated by Jesus here in Luke 18, and... Uh, likewise taught by the apostles in Romans 10, Galatians 3, 
that there is a righteousness that can come through the law if you perfectly, perpetually, and entirely obey the law, you will actually be righteous. And you will actually live and not die. So the Old Covenant repeated or reproclaimed the idea that one could live by his own righteousness. That's an echo of the original terms of relationship that God placed Adam in, in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. If you obey, you will live. If you do what I tell you to do, you will live by it. That's what God told Adam in the Garden, and that's repeated, for example, in Leviticus 18 and verse 5 in the Old Covenant. So we see republication again in that sense. However, and I'm sure you know I was coming to this, though it was a theoretical possibility, though it was a hypothetical possibility to be justified by your own righteousness, gained, achieved, accomplished, merited by your own obedience to the law, though it was a hypothetical Possibility and a theoretical possibility under the Old Covenant, it was not an actual possibility by the time that God institutes this covenant with the people of Israel at Sinai because of the broken covenant of works. You see, Adam had already sinned. By the time Israel gets to Sinai, Adam had already sinned. And therefore, everything that the Bible tells us about human nature was already true. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. So though the idea is repeated that if you do God's law, you will live by it. By that time, that ship had sailed. There was no actual hope of being like, okay, well, I'll go ahead and obey God's law and live by my own righteousness then. For Adam in the garden, it was not only a hypothetical and theoretical possibility, it was an actual possibility. Because Adam, in his original state, before he sinned and plunged himself and his posterity into guilt and corruption, he was not corrupt. And so he was able to sin and able not to sin. And if he had not sinned, it was actually possible that he would not be cursed. If he did not sin, he would not be cursed. But when he sinned, he plunged the whole human race into guilt and corruption. So when God enters into covenant with the people of Israel at Sinai, there is republication, that is an echo of the original covenant of works, in three senses. First, in the sense that the covenant at Sinai was conditional, Second, in the sense that the covenant at Sinai promised some kind of blessedness for obedience and curse for disobedience, as did the original covenant of works. And third, the covenant at Sinai repeated the idea that at least theoretically and hypothetically, one could live by his own righteousness, by his perfect, perpetual, and entire obedience to God's law. But because by that time, 
the whole human race was corrupt, it was not an actual possibility that the children of Israel could perfectly, perpetually, and entirely obey God and so live. In fact, they'd already, by the time they came to Sinai, they'd already sinned. They sinned on the journey there. So even if from that day forward, theoretically, they could never sin, their past sins would sink them into hell. So that ship had already sailed. The Old Covenant was not a republication of the covenant of works then, in the sense that God wiped this slate of the Israelites clean and gave them a second chance to merit life by the law, as He had originally done with Adam in the garden. It's not like God put Adam in this situation where he could live by the law or die by the law, and then Adam failed. And so human, the human race goes on, goes on, and then God says, okay, fresh start at Sinai. I'm not going to hold anything from the past against you. Try again. Live by the law or die by the law. That's not how it was. It's not as if God had wiped the slate of the Israelites clean and given them an actual chance to live apart from Christ Jesus by their own righteousness by the law. That was not what God was after. That was not what God was doing at Sinai. And so the covenant at Sinai was not an exact republication of the original covenant of works. It was not the exact same terms that Adam was placed on under in the garden. Everyone was guilty and corrupt already. So though the old covenant hypothetically held out eternal life, for the keeping of it, it did not actually hold out eternal life by the keeping of it as a viable possibility. Because the Old Covenant assumes and presupposes the already fallenness of the Israelites. Listen as I read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 9. In the first 12 verses, God says this, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Therefore know... Today, there, know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So they're about to inherit the covenant blessing of the possession of the land of Canaan. Do not say in your heart after the Lord has the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations 
the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And here we come to the idea that I really want to press upon you. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, or Sinai, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is Moses speaking, by the way. I neither ate bread nor drank water, drank water. And the Lord, God, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here. For your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made themselves a metal image. So you see, God already knew, already considered them as corrupt, as stubborn, as wicked, before he entered into covenant with them. So the old covenant doesn't presume that they're innocent and now have this opportunity to maintain their innocence and gain righteousness by the law, or to forfeit their innocence and bring condemnation upon themselves by their disobedience. The old covenant already assumes and presupposes this is a wicked people, a stubborn people. I'm going to enter into a covenant with them that's conditional. I'm going to enter into a covenant with them that promises blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And I'm going to enter into a covenant with them that repeats the principle that you need perfect righteousness to live. And if you could perfectly, perpetually, and entirely obey my law, you would live. I'm going to enter into a covenant with them that echoes the original covenant that I made with Adam in those ways. It's as if God said that. But I know already there is no possible way for them to actually earn life by the keeping of the law. Because they already stand condemned. See? So it wasn't as if God wiped their slate clean and gave them a fresh start and a new chance. The old covenant wasn't just a starting over and putting them in the exact same situation that Adam was in when he was in a state of innocency and could either maintain it and earn life or forfeit it and bring death upon himself. And here... I have to correct a mistake. I said two weeks ago that no Jew, no Israelite did interpret the Old Covenant in such a way that they could earn eternal life by their obedience. I said no one interpreted it that way. That's what I said. But I misspoke. 
And I say misspoke instead of I was wrong, which I have said before, by the way. But I say misspoke in this instance because I actually don't think that no one did interpret it that way. I realized after I said it that I said it wrong. In fact, it was after Sunday, so I didn't even get a chance to correct it. I was thinking, wait, what did they say on Sunday? And I went back and listened to it, and I was like, i got to correct that. I said, nobody did interpret it that way. But I don't actually think that no one did. Secondly, I say I misspoke because it was simply a case of deviating from my notes, and I started going off and speaking just, I guess, uh, off the cuff and um, sort of without the notes guiding me, and I just became less accurate as I did so. What I should have said was not that no one did interpret the Old Covenant in such a way that they thought they could earn life, eternal life, by the keeping of the law. What I should have said was that no one should have interpreted the Old Covenant in such a way that they could earn eternal life by the keeping of the law. The fact that many did interpret the Old Covenant in such an erroneous way is an obvious biblical fact. Even in Luke 18, which I cited earlier, this is the young man's mentality. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the man's mentality. There is something I can do to inherit eternal life. There are rules that I have to keep to inherit eternal life. This is his mentality. In fact, it's because he has that mentality that Jesus answers him the way he does. You see, Jesus wasn't actually encouraging him to continue trying to get eternal life by the works of the law. Jesus was actually, in a roundabout way, trying to show him that he hadn't kept the law quite as well as he thought he had. If we go on and read, Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So this was the man's mentality. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Scholars debate whether Jesus was showing him that he had broken the 10th commandment, which is do not covet, and that he was a covetous man who felt that he couldn't live and be happy without all these other things, or whether he was breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And for him, his wealth was of greater value than God himself. But in any case, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, yes, 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 you're on the right track. If you obey the commandments, you would get eternal life. But look here, you haven't kept the commandments. Which is going to make the man look then for a plan B. You see, so Jesus isn't actually encouraging him to keep doing what he's doing and just try to get better and improve himself morally so that he'll be saved. Jesus is conceding, yes, if you keep the commandments, you will live. But then he turns the tables on him and goes, but you haven't kept the commandments quite as well as you think you have. So maybe you should consider another way. That's kind of the flavor of what's happening in Luke 18. But it's obvious, and this is the point I'm making, it's obvious that this this young man did, in fact, interpret 
the Old Covenant in such a way that he thought he could merit and earn eternal life by his law-keeping, by his covenant-keeping. It's obviously interpreted it that way. Romans 9, just before the passage that I read to you earlier from Romans chapter 10 and verse 5. Romans 9, 31 and 32 says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. This tells us that by and large, the whole Israelite race, the whole Jewish people, tried to get righteousness by the works of the law. This was their whole error. This was their whole problem. This is largely what Paul is combating in Romans. And I say largely because he's also speaking about the lostness of Gentiles. But there was this predominant view among the Jews that righteousness was by the works of the law. And this is a huge theme that Paul is battling against in Romans. Galatians 3.10 says... All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In this very saying of this, Paul is assuming that it's a real danger in the Galatian church that people are actually relying on works of the law. Otherwise, what would be the point of saying it? I'm not going to preach a sermon warning you of the danger of trusting in purple unicorns. Because nobody is. Paul wouldn't take the time to write an epistle to the Galatians warning them about relying on works of the law unless people actually were relying on works of the law. And so it's an obvious biblical fact that many did read stuff like Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them, and they, they said, okay, well then I'll do them. And I'll live by them. And they interpreted the Old Covenant that way and ran with it and tried to get eternal life by the works of the law. But because the Old Covenant was not given in the same way that the original covenant of works with Adam was given, that is, by God to an innocent people. Instead, it was given by God to an already guilty people, an already corrupt people. It was hopeless for anyone in, anyone in Israel to try to live by the works of the law under that old covenant. Even though it was still hypothetically true that if someone could... Pre- perpetually, entirely, and perfectly obey that they would live. And so they should not have gone that route, but they did. Now, summary so far. The Sinai Covenant The Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, whatever you want to call it, echoes the Covenant of Works, or it's like the Covenant of Works in the sense that it's conditional. 
It promises blessedness for obedience and curses for disobedience. And it does repeat and contain the idea that one could live, even have eternal life, by his own righteousness, by the works of the law, by the keeping of the law. However, it's unlike the first covenant in the sense that nobody who entered into covenant with God at Sinai actually could because they were already guilty and corrupt. Whereas Adam could have in the garden because he was innocent, could have maintained his innocency and earned a righteousness by his law keeping that would have merited blessedness according to the terms of that covenant. It was not an actual possibility for the Israelites to do so since they were already guilty and corrupt. So, the Old Covenant could not actually bring about the blessedness that God ultimately intended for His people to enter into. It could not actually lead to eternal life. No one could actually be saved by the Old Covenant. People should have read verses like Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. And that should have driven them first into despair. Oh, are you serious? I have to keep God's rules and God's statutes in order to live? Oh, I'm in big trouble. Because ever since we came out of Egypt, look at how wicked we've been. We are a stubborn people. Right? This is just the words of Deuteronomy 9, isn't it? This is what God said about them. This is, what, this is how the Israelites should have responded. We are a wicked people. We are a stubborn people. And not just those in the other tents. The people in my tent too. And me. We are a stubborn people. We are a wicked people. But God says, do this and live. We haven't done it. We can't do it. What then? And that's when the temple, or the tabernacle in the first place, the priests, the lambs, would have started to become very precious and would have started to teach a lesson. Oh, so God says, do this and live. And I haven't done this, so I deserve to die. But there is someone who will stand before me and stand before God on my behalf and he will offer up a sacrifice for me ah thank God for grace and they would have started to learn what the old covenant was intended to teach that though hypothetically yes the doing of God's law leads to life the breaking of it leads to death and we've all broken it and so we need another way and they would have started looking at all of the types and the shadows which were pointing forward to someone to come Jesus who is the tabernacle the meeting place between God and man who is the priest the one who represents us before the Father the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world to take away the sin of the world and they would have believed and trusted upon God's grace and so been saved, not by the old covenant, 
but by the covenant which was coming. The new covenant. The covenant of grace. You see, it's, it was the same for them as it is for us. In Christ alone, my hope is found. For them, it was trusting in a promise yet to be fulfilled. For us, it's trusting in a fulfilled promise. But this is what it's been about since the beginning. And the old covenant was not given to save or to damn, as John Owen said. But rather, the old covenant was given to teach. And this is what it was intended to teach. That yes, hypothetically, you can live by perfect, perpetual, entire obedience to God's law. But since none of us have done that, and we've already blown it, and that ship sailed, and that door's already closed, we need to look for another way. But God has provided another way. There's a temple. There's a priest. There's a lamb. His name is Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. They should have started looking for another covenant, a better covenant, which the writer to Hebrews says has come to us in Christ Jesus. The covenant he mediates is better. They should have looked forward to and anticipated a day when God would deal with his people not on the basis of conditionality, not on the basis of requiring a righteousness from law-keeping, not on the basis of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, but on the basis of the merit of another, the lamb, the priest, the tabernacle, a new covenant with better conditions, better rewards, and they should have trusted in that grace which was pictured and foreshadowed and taught about in the old covenant. It was the same for them as it is for us. In Christ alone, my hope is found. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood.